Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite. This week's episode is on the screenplay to Whiplash by Damien Chazelle. And if it's a film you haven't seen and you don't want anything to be spoiled, don't listen past this point as we will be discussing the full scope of the story from beginning to end. On the surface, it's a very simple screenplay with just a couple of characters, yet it manages to use conflict as the driving force throughout and the characters are written with great detail and a lot of power behind all of them. So it's definitely a great one to be studying as you're learning about screenwriting or the way that your favorite films were developed. I feel that we had a really engaging discussion this week as well, and it really builds up from the beginning, and we get into a lot of detail towards the end. So hopefully it's really worth your while and you enjoy the show. The only other announcement that I have this week is that we have been approved onto Apple Podcasts, so if you were hoping to subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts or iTunes on the computer, then you can do so now, and we really hope that makes it easier for you. Like I said, I just wanted to do a very quick introduction this week, so let's get straight into the show. Hello, and welcome to the 21st Rewrite. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Alan Vasquez. Hi, and I'm happy to say that today we are talking about the wonderful screenplay Whiplash, written by Damien Chazelle. It's truly a, a very riveting film and a very suspenseful film. The first impression I got from reading the screenplay right off the bat especially the beginning, is how great he writes action. He's great at dialogue, but I think it's great for, for everyone involved in the film, the actors, the, the art direction, because he's very clear on what he wants based on the action part of the screenplay. Because usually when you read a screenplay, I don't know about you, but I tend to sort of skim through you know, a lot of the action stuff, if it's not engaging, I just kind of get the basic idea of what it is. And then I kind of just really get into the dialogue. But with this, it was so um, captivating. Yeah. So I, I really wanted us to look at Damien Chazelle. Yeah. And we're going to do a three-part series on his, his three films. Uh-huh. This first script was written when he was only 27. So I think it's really important to consider mm-hmm. that as a really critical part of what this screenplay is about. It's about seeing someone who's going to go on and become one of the most acclaimed directors in Hollywood. And it's his first real screenplay that we get to read 120 pages of. And so we'll be looking at Whiplash, we'll be looking at La La Land, and we'll be looking at First Man, all dealing with very different topics. But he really made Whiplash in order to kill time while he was trying to get La La Land off the ground. Mm-hmm. And we can see a similarity of themes, but also mm-hmm. this, it's, it's almost a polar opposite of La La Land. La La Land mm. is such a positive, happy celebration mm. of jazz and acting and singing and dancing. And Whiplash is about the, the exact opposite of that, the mm. being corrupted by this sense of wanting to be the best, wanting to be famous. And it only really has two characters. For anyone mm. who's an aspiring screenwriter, the first thing you've got to get down, it isn't the story, it's not the three-act structure, it's conflict. Mm. That is what makes a movie. Mm. This is why I'm so impressed with what Chazelle did. He made a film that's just about the conflict between two people, 
And the main criticisms of Whiplash come from musicians saying it's not like the real music world. Well, that's true, because it's not about the real music world. This is a story that could be set in a military camp with an abusive commander and a, a new recruit that wants to impress him. It yeah. could be set anywhere. It's about the abuse of power, and there's a very interesting theory lying underneath it over whether conditioning is actually a way that you can make people great. Mm. I think, you know... It's so funny you mentioned. I agree with La La Land being very similar to this, and in a lot of ways. And but what's ironic, and it just came to me, is that their endings are kind of also opposites, but not in the way you'd expect. Because Whiplash has a kind of a happy ending. Mm -hmm. La La Land doesn't. Exactly. So, it, but throughout the story, there are opposites, and in, in mm -hmm. that sense as well. So it's kind of funny that he turned the table around for both films in a way. Because this film is about torture. It's a lot about how much one is able to endure in order to get to their goal. Like you say, strive for perfection. How much are they willing to sacrifice and, and believe for it, literally? And is it worth it? And is it worth it? And But also, you, you were mentioning how musicians had a critique against the film or they had their reservations about it. But I feel that he's not trying to say that this is every every band and every teacher i don't think i think this is he's he's been very open about this being based on a teacher he had and we do need to take that into account that it's not fair for us to say to the person who's writing about their own personal experiences well your personal experiences couldn't have been like that because that's not what a music school is or a high school band is like he's saying that it was very intense and that there was this, this sense of trying to drive people to achieve more through hard practice and ruling out other things in their lives and dedicating themselves entirely to one idea. Mm -hmm. So from that point of view, he and he has said that his actual teacher was nothing like Fletcher, that he actually really loved his teacher, but that was the inspiration yeah. from which this idea developed. Right, yeah. and I think it's... Uh... Film is larger than life. Mm -hmm. And I think the story, I, I mean, I don't watch it thinking like, oh, poor Damien, look at all the, you know, what he went through. I, it's fiction. Yeah, this is, this is <laughs> absolutely. And yeah. as I said, it's a 27-year-old playing around with the limits of film and wanting to do something that's really effective on a low budget. Yeah, this so was you, a, yeah. extremely low budget. And actually, he actually shot a short film in order to make this film. He had J.K. Simmons in the short film as well, but a different Andrew. There was another actor. Mm -hmm. But it was essentially he had written the script, and he just took a scene from the script, shot it. It was like 20 minutes or something. And then that's how he was able to secure finances for this, which wasn't a lot. But nonetheless, he did have J.K. Simmons, who was championing the script, because he, he saw pretty much the the potential that was in this. I think it's a really especially for a 27-year-old, it's a brilliantly written script. It's, yeah, it's great. Just for context, I read the Blacklist version of the script, which is the version that he published on the Blacklist on the website. And that version changed significantly before it became the shooting script. And then I feel that a lot of differences kind of crept in, probably at the editing process, because it seems like most of the scenes follow the same dialogue structure. As, mm. as is written out in the shooting script. But then he moved around 
the actual timing of the scenes, which probably made a lot more sense once the music was in involved. And, yes. and you can tell throughout the film that music is central to the pacing of the story. Mm-hmm. And he's he's using cuts constantly that go in time with the music. Mm-hmm. So it, that must have been a very significant part of it. And And the writing of a film is essentially always just a framework for what you want to happen. But when you see it on the screen, the pacing might be completely different to what you imagined when you were writing it Exactly. Out. That's exactly it. That's what I noticed too, is that the, the order of the scenes changed a little bit. And it's also some of the characters, for example, the character of... Uh, Andrew's dad, for example, doesn't have as much of a presence as he does in the script. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more to deal with him in that sense. But I can see why he wanted to just center around Andrew and Fletcher. I mean, these mm-hmm. are, like you said, this is the major conflict, and that's what's driving the entire story. And I think right off the bat, we it doesn't take us too long to get to Fletcher. Right in the very first scene, Fletcher, we can see the manipulation we can see how his brain really works you know and it's all in subtle ways you know there's this way of instilling sort of emotional i guess you would call it emotional manipulation a little bit he goes in and andrew is practicing the drums and he leaves and then he comes back kind of playing with his emotions a little bit and then just comes back and takes um his hat that he accidentally forgot but he didn't i think he's trying to make this enticing sort of like finds this potential talent and he already starts his training the way he thinks he's training them. Yeah, so as we look at the development of of the story mm-hmm. as as we progress chronologically through it, mm-hmm. we'll see each of his tactics and the first one he implements here is getting his students to doubt themselves. So that once they're doubting themselves, they start to trust him above everyone else even above their own thoughts mm-hmm. so he's he's already calling andrew out and and saying did i ask you to stop or that's did right I, that's you right. know straight away making him doubt himself did i do the right thing did i do the wrong thing mm-hmm. and this this definitely continues throughout this even up to the last scene he's mm-hmm. he's doing this and we'll we'll look at the implications of that as we go through Fletcher is a really, really interesting character. He is a master manipulator. And the worst thing about it, like all good villains, he believes he's doing it for a good reason. Yeah, the the stuff that he does is almost criminal, really. But once you hear him explain himself and why he does it, you can see the level of conviction and almost earnestness in which he sees this you know, it's it's a really interesting dynamic. Yeah, I th- I think one of the things that suggested to me that he might be more of a villain is actually the fact that Chazelle changes his wardrobe through the different rewrites of the film. Mm. So finally, he's wearing all black throughout the movie. He's always wearing black in every single scene, mm. which I kind of like. That's always part of a a nice subtle uh, subliminal visual mm-hmm. language the mm-hmm. fact that fletcher is always wearing black this is true yeah and you'll often see andrew wearing uh, a lighter colored shirt yeah. and uh andrew's dad generally kind of in lighter colors i always feel like andrew's dad is kind of his conscience or the the little angel on his shoulder 
who he's refusing to listen to throughout. Yeah, there, there's definitely that dynamic too. But also, I feel that dad also represents something negative for Andrew. Mm-hmm. I think when he looks at his dad, his okay, so his dad was an aspiring writer when he was younger, and now he's a, I believe, a high school teacher. And even in their introductions, Fletcher asks, well, tell me about your dad or something. He tells me, oh, yeah, my dad was a writer, but now, he's just, uh, uh, but now he teaches. And he says, oh, what college? He's like, well, actually, no, high school. Yeah, uh, he, he's gradually lowering the, because he's told himself uh, as a son, his dad's the, his hero, of course. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of told himself these, these little lies in a way. My dad is a writer, but when, right. when Fletcher calls him out on it, he suddenly scales back and thinks, is he though? Has he published anything? So he's just a teacher. And it kind of, you see Fletcher's part of that manipulation as well as kind of getting yes. him to respect his, his, his own father a bit less. And that's exactly yeah. what happens. So mm-hmm. after that interaction, I feel his dad represents safety, represents mm-hmm. not going for it, not you know, not really pursuing the dream and settling. I think he represents everything that Andrew doesn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And I think, like you say, Fletcher uses that against him as a weapon. He doesn't outright say it, but like, there's your dad. This has been this failure. Is that really who you want to be? Mm-hmm. So even up to the end, he's still battling with that perception that he now has of his father. And understandably so. I mean, like you say, you bring up the the question of striving for perfection and how far is one willing to go to get to that? And is it needed? Could he have done the same thing without Fletcher? Is that possible? And I think it's something that doesn't is not answered in the film, but it's it's definitely a question that lingers there. Yeah, one one of the things that I noticed in the in the script is that some of the first allusions to who Jim is are taken out in the the early scene where they are in the the movie theater together mm-hmm. is streamlined a bit, and there was a line where he mentioned his writing career in reference to Andrew, but they still kept that key phrase, which remains in all of the different versions and the film version, which is when you get a bit older. You'll, you'll have perspective. And Andrew says, I don't want perspective. It's almost like he sees the advice from his father as limiting mm-hmm. straight away. Mm-hmm. If I had the perspective, I wouldn't be able to put in the dedication that will get me to being my future self as a great musician mm. to have the perspective. He's, he, he sees that it's kind of this, um, it's this thing that can kind of limit him in the sense that it's easier to go in blind. If he really wants to be great, he just has to go in completely blind to this. And it's like a all-absorbing thing for Andrew. He thrives on it for a while there. This is what he wants. Buddy Rich, like this is the dream. And I think with his girlfriend, he wants to save her from what he is sure is going to happen. Well, so Nicole as a character is quite interesting, I mm-hmm. think, because first of all, it shows us what Andrew was interested in before he became obsessed with music. Right. So before Fletcher, before the, the studio band, 
Andrew still has these other interests. He does like spending time with his dad. And he mm -hmm. is interested in this girl who he sees at the theater every time he goes. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know her name. They, ba they barely talk, but he started to, to like her and he's going to get the courage to ask her out soon. But you see him start to change as the story progresses. These aren't huge extravagances that he is going for in life. Just spending a bit of time with his, his only parent and a bit of time with a romantic partner. Yeah, absolutely. And also I think just his sort of sense of self, his own ego becomes inflated. Damien Chazelle said Andrew is pretty much based on him to an extent. It's not really all of him. But nonetheless, you have Damien Chazelle, who's a, an aspiring filmmaker, which is also all-consuming, not unlike playing in this band. So I feel like a lot of what Damien was going through probably while he was trying to make these films, and I'm sure he went through similar situations where he was probably putting off hanging out with his family, like, you know, very similar situations, obviously probably not to that extreme. He just draws enough inspiration, and I think it's the perfect mix of him having to go through that in high school, that particular story, and then just all his experience probably trying to make a film and how that kind of... There's a similarity there, I think, between the two. And him wanting to make a great film, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure like writing it, making it, and dealing with those themes must have been kind of... Uh, there was just inspiration everywhere for it. Yeah, so I, th I think Andrew gets... This is another part of the way that Fletcher will manipulate him, mm -hmm. I suppose, in retrospect. But he kind of gets promoted above his station as mm -hmm. well because he is just a first year. And he isn't really even meant to... Of course, he's excited about being in this studio band, but he isn't really even meant to be there. And it's not like he's, he, he wants it all very quickly. Mm. In, in one of the early scenes, Andrew is practicing with his normal band and you, mm -hmm. this is written so well, it says, visible as a silhouette through the frosted glass of the main door is Fletcher. And on screen, it looks great as well because you can tell it's him even though it's it's so blurry, you can just tell he's there with his ear to the door. And I really love that. He's like this presence. He's like a ghost or something. He's or some sort of supernatural force mm -hmm. that is where Andrew is in life. He's just this spirit that you might encounter in the hallway, mm -hmm. and then he's gone. Mm -hmm. And Andrew, you see him going to then spy on Fletcher's band and see what's going on in there. And then Fletcher turns around and sees him through the window. Yeah, this is a, this is their courting in mm -hmm. a way. Yeah, it's definitely one scoping out the other. Yeah, they they are. Yeah, they're yeah. they're dancing around each other uh -huh. to to an extent. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think it's just uh, their minds sort of feeling each other out. And as an audience, we're not as easily manipulated as Andrew. No, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. So we get how Andrew's being manipulated quite well. This is the thing about Fletcher is he gets him to a peak and then he brings him down and then he bring, he rises him again and then brings him down. And this begins to feel almost like protocol. After a while, I'm like, all right, yeah, it's time for the bad stuff to happen now because this is kind of the, mm -hmm. the, the technique that he's using on him. I think it's really important to point out as well that when psychologists study abuse, one of the most common things is that the people who are being abused don't realize it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. But the outsider can tell it straight away. Mm-hmm. Andrew will not listen to his father trying to warn him away from Fletcher. Whether or not Fletcher's ultimate aims are good, let's say. I mean, Andrew almost dies during this, the course of this story. And another of Fletcher's students does kill himself. So there is definitely some very murky ethics around the way that Fletcher operates. He sure. believes it's the best way to do it, the only way maybe sure. to create a great. And at the same time, Andrew cannot see what is happening. And he's he's very young. He's only 19. He's a first year. He's he's the youngest in the, they point Fletcher points that out, right? He calls him the squeaker in the class. Yes, that's right. The youngest. Yeah. So we'll see this develop. Yeah, so there's all that type of manipulation that's going on by using others. And for me, it was there's this dynamic cuz I've had teachers or I've had, you know, very stern figures of authority and a part of me is well, how much do they care? And how much of it is just their own negativity, you know what I mean? And and it's very hard to tell sometimes where that line is drawn. Because Fletcher, at the end of the day, does have not the best intentions, but his intention is not to hurt the guy. You know, his intention is to make him great. Yeah, and a lot of the behavior that Andrew displays is not Fletcher's intention. Certainly the stuff that happens with the car um, and the mm. bus that's not what Fletcher wanted to happen. And I think he doesn't realize the forces he's unleashing. Mm-hmm. He probably should. But maybe if there's anything you could say in his defense, some of the stuff that Andrew does isn't really Fletcher's fault. No, it's just a byproduct mm-hmm. of, of, of Fletcher. Like you say. It can be traced back to him. It, it can, it, yeah. It's his influence. Yeah. But at the end of the day, Andrew is making the choices mm-hmm. that he's making, and that's entirely him. And th- there's also another interesting bit about the start because we are establishing who all these characters are. Yeah. In the in the screenplay versions, Andrew is planning on dropping out. He's, yeah. And he's brand new to the school, but mm-hmm. he's already feeling like he's not really making it. He's not good enough. So he's already doubting himself, and that makes him kind of an ideal candidate to be drawn into Fletcher's little world because he he really doesn't feel like he's he's cut out for this. So he needs someone to tell him he's good. I'm surprised that all of that was taken out, but when you actually do watch the film, that you realize that the pacing works so well and the time, that the exact length of the film feels so right for a story of this depth. Mm-hmm. Two hours maybe would be too long for it. A lot of the stuff they took out about Fletcher and his personal life and Andrew and his doubts about continuing, they don't necessarily add anything that isn't implied already. Yeah, exactly. And and I was listening to this interview of Damien Chazelle actually talking about the screenplay and talking about the film. And he said that sometimes the actor would do something with a look and then he would think, oh, well, I don't think we need this anymore. There's a point where Fletcher is describing the student, Charlie Kelly, who killed himself. Or, as Fletcher tells the class, died in a car crash. Mm. And you watch Miles Teller's face as he's listening to that story. And in, if you were to only read the screenplay, you'd just hear Fletcher's telling this story to the class. But when you watch Miles Teller's face, he's projecting Andrew hearing all of these wonderful things 
about this this jazz prodigy and he's hearing it and thinking it applies to him because he hears that he was small and skinny or something like that and you see a little smile just appear on his face because he's thinking oh i'm like that guy maybe i'll be great one day Mm. he doesn't hear died in a car crash he doesn't care about that Mm. and i think that's one of those moments that you're talking about yeah of what he was who he thinks he is ultimately just from a look less is more and and in, in terms of film which is a visual medium Sometimes as a writer, you tend to forget that because you want to make sure that all the information is conveyed on the page. It's written. You want it to be clear, which is great. But once you're on film, it's just about less is more. And in that way, it kind of engages the audience a little bit more. When when you're not spelling it out, you invite them a little bit more into like wondering like, huh, I wonder what that was about. First, there's a scene where Fletcher picks Andrew and tells him to meet the band at 6 a.m., another of his manipulation techniques. Oh, that's or, right. Yeah. Or at least putting Andrew in his place didn't need to be there at 6. They mm-hmm. start at 9, so he's sat in the room for three hours, having rushed out, having overslept his alarm. And then there's that great scene where you first see what Fletcher's band is really like. Mm. The this first- is the That whole scene is pretty much, it feels like a, almost kind of like a ritual, kind of a... What did you call it when you're an initiation of sorts mm. for for him? Because it feels like he's putting on a display, yeah, putting on a show. Yeah. Yeah. He gets and he's rid of, picked a victim. He picks a victim, not the right victim, because the guy that was out of tune, uh, he wanted to get rid of the one that didn't admit to it because he didn't know if he was out of tune or not. And for him that's worse if you don't know if you're in or out of tune. That guy's gone. And then he acts really nice towards there's like a break of sorts mm-hmm. and he goes up to him and he says like you know sorry about had to hear about that oh tell me more about your dad oh you know like he but has he's his, using that to I get know. ammunition to use on andrew later yes yes you can never trust a snake i think no. is the, kind of the moral of this story he was a total snake right there like well in general but he definitely you know played that whole like oh it's okay you know i'm sure you'll do great it's fine and then round two uh they finished the break and that's when he completely destroys poor Andrew. One of the things I love about the music scenes and I know a lot of uh, musicians who have watched this movie don't entirely agree with this mm. but what I love about the movie is for people who don't play music, it turns music into this magic trick for us. For we, the uninformed audience, it's, it's just like magic. You just see this guy go out and start to wave his hand and you, Chazelle picks all these wonderful cuts where you see just a snippet of the music written on the page. Yeah, it's great. And anyone who's seen written music before, you know, how to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star on a keyboard at school or something, Suddenly you're you're just seeing for a second this page just covered with annotations and you're thinking, wow, these guys, they, it's like they're reading some language I can't even decipher. And I love that. I love how he, mm-hmm. he draws us in and shows us just how incredible the, this is. And we know he has a real passion for this kind of music. I think it's a real disservice if uh, people think that he misrepresents the way of life of musicians. Right. But what was Because Chazelle really does care about this music, and that's really clear from La La Land as well. 
mm-hmm. and his collaborations with Justin Hurwitz, which begin with this movie. Mm-hmm. He allows Justin to compose this wonderful score and pick a few classic jazz pieces as well that they're going to include while they're working on La La Land. And That's incredible. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of Justin, who's a brilliant man, so they didn't have enough budget. They just had enough money to get two songs for the film, which was mm-hmm. Caravan and, and Whiplash. And Whiplash. Yeah. So those two, they had to pay for, and it cost a bit of money or something. So they had no money left for any other sort of pieces. So he had Justin compose everything else. So everything mm-hmm. that you hear in the film that's not Whiplash or Caravan was composed by Justin, which is incredible. It's a purely jazz score. There's no other type of feeling in it. There's no suspenseful music when there's like a scene or like any romantic cues. Like it's all pure jazz. I love the fact that there is none of that as well mm-hmm. because it makes the the environment of the uh, the classrooms in which they're working form so much of the soundscape. So when Fletcher shouts, there's this echo and it echoes through the whole room. When he throws the chair, it just, the clatter, the clash, everything, it's, they do so much with so little there. And then the other thing that's really fascinating is you've got Justin Hurwitz, who is, at the time of this, was also very, very young. And he's composing songs like Fletcher's song. It's the same as a writer who is able to write the voice of a 60-year-old, 50-year-old man Mm. and trying to add in all of that worldly experience into their dialogue and compare that to the dialogue that you'd write for a teenager. Composing Fletcher's song, you've got to write the kind of piano song that someone who had dedicated their entire life to jazz music would play on piano in a jazz club in New York. That's much easier said than done. I didn't even think about that. You're absolutely you know, right. that, like yeah. they're they're using the language yeah. correctly in this mm-hmm. sense that they're, they're imitating without having the experience themselves of it. They're imitating much more worldly experience, which is what you kind of have to do when you're young. Mm-hmm. You can't just be, you can't just say, "Well, I know everything about this topic. I'm an expert in it." If you're under thirty, you're pretty much just. Uh, trying to get by really with <laughs> you're just on trial yeah pretty much that that is amazing yes you're absolutely but it's right. completely convincing the way it they is. do this this trick mm-hmm. it convinces us all yeah and that just shows just how talented these two guys are and just how much love they have for the music you mm-hmm. know you, you're talking about justin and what he did on his end and also Damien, what he does with the camera to honor that so you have like these beautiful shots these close-ups of you know, from a technical perspective, you have a close-up of a drumstick hitting the skin and it's so beautifully lit. And from a technical standpoint, I paused this one particular close-up that happened at the very end of the film. There's it's a when he's doing his drum solo. And there's this close-up, and it's just such a beautiful shot. Is this when he drops the tempo right yes. to the slowest? And then he's starting before back he's up gonna again. bring it, yeah. And there's a close-up of the drumstick hitting it's slow motion. And then I just paused that because it looks so beautiful. And I just looked at the lighting and what that must have done, must have taken to just get that one shot. And there's plenty of shots in that whole sequence, but it just shows the level of care and detail. 
it, it, a lot of those sequences are edited around the music. There's like a cue that mm -hmm. goes with the tempo, that goes with the music and how he edits around that. And I think, you know, he's really trying to make it all come alive he, visually. When the music is playing, he won't leave the camera still, essentially. Even when there's like a long shot, even when there's a long shot of the theater audience, mm -hmm. when the bar changes, he moves the camera slightly. It's just a cut to a slightly different camera yeah. angle and a slightly different way. Each time there's a new bar. Yes. And that is really, really interesting yeah. how he how he does that so that you, you're just never allowed to sit still. It, he plays a lot in cuts. Cue cut to this, cut to this, cut to that. There's a lot of that play as well. And we're seeing a, ta a talent for choreography that's going to, to build up uh, yeah. for La La Land in the future yeah. as well. Um, so that scene where Fletcher kicks out the not out of tune player. He hurls some horrible uh, slurs at him, I suppose. Yeah. He uses a lot of uh, degrading words in reference to the guy's weight. And then... Yeah, um, I don't know how to feel about that because I, well, Fletcher I is, laugh a lot. And I'm like, it's not funny, but it's really funny how he just spews these insults that are kind yeah. of creative. If I it's exactly that. It's <laughs> you're impressed by just how creative he is being yeah. horrible, and you also think if anything is unrealistic about this film, it's that anyone would get away with acting that way in an American university. What we hear about universities is just how mm -hmm. um, how careful you have to be with what you say. There's a sense that Fletcher has become completely immune to to everything. That was my one kind of, uh, when I first watched it, I do remember thinking that, I'm like, how is this guy still teaching given he just literally threw a chair at a student? How does that happen? So there's like a kind of a leap of faith we kind of have to take. But you never know. I mean, it, you could say the same thing about Harvey Weinstein and the fact that apparently a lot of people knew what he was doing, yet he kept doing it. There's definitely a sense that the students are aware that this is not okay. Mm -hmm. but they are accepting it out of their own self-interest. They still feel that when they weigh it up, they think it's better to be taught by Fletcher in this abusive manner than not at all by him. Yes. By one of the inferior teachers as they see them. Yes. So in a way, he's kind of got them hooked mm -hmm. as well. He's, his manipulation has worked on every single one of them. They both fear and respect him and yeah. i think a, a dictator that's what a dictator does yeah he's created a veil of silence ar yeah. around what really goes on we'll we'll look at this slightly later mm -hmm. there is uh, not too long after this there's a scene where they're they're backstage at the first competition that andrew's a part of mm -hmm. and you see fletcher greeting an old friend of his who's got mm -hmm. his young daughter there mm -hmm. and he's being the nicest guy in the world to them mm -hmm. He's saying, oh, when you're older, you come and play with me. You're going to be in, in my band. And he's being so nice, and he hugs his friend. Mm -hmm. He is completely two-faced. And we see that that scene, I think, was put in there specifically to highlight that everyone outside of these bands thinks that he's a really nice guy yeah. because he's being two-faced, and he's showing he's he's being really nice and really polite to everyone around. And then as soon as he's got these students or victims mm. he does what he feels like i think it's also a it also kind of sh 
makes the audience, or at least it made me feel that maybe he's not that bad after all in terms of, because this is his ex-student, not just someone outside the band and someone that used to be in a band with him that I would assume was a student of his. Well, so once you've impressed him, once you've got through his training once you're done, rituals, yeah. once, you, once you leave his his orbit, once mm-hmm. you're out there, then he's he's okay. Like, you know, he's one-on-one. He's a, he's a good guy. And I think that makes the audience feel a little bit more mixed towards him, which I think is great because he's not just a one-note character. There's we certainly start downside ourselves because we are only being shown a certain slice of his yeah. his life and again some of these scenes where we actually see more of him and there are scenes that were meant to probably drum up a bit more sympathy for him were taken out mm. when when you'd see scenes of him kind of eating alone and it seems like he uh perhaps lost his family his, maybe his wife left him but there's just an allusion to the fact he did have a wife and a daughter and then they're nowhere to be seen in his life anymore. So those I scenes. I wonder why. Yeah, those, <laughs> that's the thing. Maybe they left him because of that. Maybe there was an accident. We don't really know. We're right. never going to be told. Right. But those scenes could only serve to drum up a bit more sympathy for him. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Instead, we end up kind of doubting who he really is, but not knowing if we should even be sympathetic towards him. There's definitely trepidation. You're like, oh, he's nice to that dude. Mm-hmm. And it, it definitely doesn't make you automatically think like, oh, he's just doing it for, for the good of the kids or anything. But it, like you said, it shows a different shade of, of who he is. Yeah, the only other things I'd point out at this point for those that haven't read the screenplay and just know the film, they're just interested. In the screenplay, the scenes where Andrew spends time with Nicole come a bit earlier and they're pushed out much later in the film version. So he did ask Nicole out earlier in the screenplay, and this actually happens after this whole uh, first time in Fletcher's band. Mm-hmm. And I think they really did an incredible job rewriting those scenes. Originally, he works in a deli in the Blacklist script. He just works in a deli, and she's a customer. And then she became the girl that works at the movie theater. Yeah. Nicole is basically not in the Blacklist script. It's almost as if she wasn't really relevant to the whole story. Mm. She is made much more of a, an important character, but the interactions are pushed out a bit later. And when you read the shooting script, their interaction is a bit funny. And when you see it on screen, it's done so well because what was actually missing from the, the written version is they didn't actually know each other's names, and that wasn't acknowledged. So in the film... He's, he says, oh, I'm Andrew. And she's, I'm Nicole, by the way. Mm. And I just thought that was brilliant <laughs> because it was clearly missing. They mm. they didn't actually know each other at all. And that's probably one of the first things you'd want to say to someone if you're about to ask them out on a date. Yeah. Is, At least I need to know your name. And right, right. Yeah, <laughs> so no, I just thought that sense. was interesting that that was kind of missing. And then they, they added that in right at the last minute to make their relationship seem a bit... Their chemistry is great on screen in those early scenes as well. Yeah, no, it's really cool. So that chemistry really invests us in the relationship because we see what it could have become. Mm -hmm. We see that there was a spark there. There was there was a lot of interest that they they could have been happy in some way. But as we see, his priorities change, and he is not interested in someone who doesn't know exactly what she wants to do with her life because that's the way he wants to live his life. 
Yes. I mean, I think emotionally they were both a little lonely. And I think they kind of allude to that in the very beginning when they first meet, when I think it's in the script where he says, you know, he glances back to look at her and there's like a a hint Mm -hmm. of loneliness, you know, her going back to work or something. So, you know, they're they're at that age. They're obviously attracted to each other and they're, you know. And they're both terrified. They're both young. Yeah. And they're in this huge city mm-hmm. where no one cares who you are. Mm-hmm. And that's sure. the that's the funny thing about this uh, being on the cusp of adulthood is you're ready to be an adult, but you're also suddenly aware that you're a nobody as an adult. Mm. <laughs> because when you're a kid, you've got all these teachers who are telling you how wonderful and great you are. That's true. Hopefully, unless you're that's misbehaving true. at school. But otherwise, yeah, then yeah. suddenly you're 18, 19, and it's off to university and then you're really you've got to restart all your old friends are gone you've got to basically do it by yourself for the first time and you don't have a guidebook for it Mm -hmm. yeah no and unfortunately she is simple-mindedness no ambition it's it's almost like she stands out especially as having no ambition and i think that's yeah that is something that we have to we have to acknowledge that it makes sense that he broke up with her for that it does for that over all things she doesn't really know who she is and she doesn't really know what she wants mm-hmm. at least andrew's dad jim does know what he wants he's just not able to get there because he's a bit more pragmatic and realistic about life mm-hmm. and this kind of uh, ties into sideways a bit as well same kind of character a high school teacher who wanted to be a writer. Mm. Oh, that would have been <laughs> that would have been a good like crossover. Yeah, um, but that's that is what Miles's life was, and we yeah. see what kind of a state that gets him into. No, that's right. You know, you have Fletcher being like the devil on this shoulder, the dad being the angel on this shoulder, and uh, I feel like she's on that shoulder too. But from Andrew's perspective, unfortunately, he doesn't see it as like you know good or bad it's more of like if i don't go with fletcher i'm gonna end up like them and unfortunately he starts we start seeing how he begins to see other people including Mm -hmm. his family and and what that does once you're instilled with that drive and you're getting that push and you get this tunnel vision nothing else matters but this goal how easy it becomes to cut out people that love you or because they don't fit into your agenda there's almost this sort of, almost kind of equated to, you know, someone that has a drug addiction. Nothing else matters. You just want the drug. You just want that high. Nothing else matters. I just got to get better at drums. Nothing else matters. It's the same mentality. It's the same tunnel vision. Everything else is second. It doesn't matter what it is. And it's that's where the danger in lies, I feel. Yeah, the, the fact there is no limit to his ambition. Once, mm-hmm. once he cuts ties with the people who would show him alternatives, he starts to have no limit to his ambition. It becomes the only focus in his life. Yeah. And Which, ultimately, that's not balanced. Exactly. There's got to be a balance. But nonetheless, there's a certain level of admiration, at least for me, that there's that discipline and that just... 100% all or nothing mentality and just you go. I don't think I would ever go that far, but I'm just no, saying that's it's, the thing. It's, it's admirable. The, the drive is good, but yeah. it's it's the extent to which you let it dominate you. 
mm. that is bad. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of lessons in this, even though this, this is ultimately just a very simple screenplay on the surface, there are a few lessons about mm-hmm. ambition and also this theory of, of greatness. Because there's this reality behind all of this, which is only the top percentage of any musicians or any filmmakers or writers and everything really make it. Mm -hmm. And the others, it will bring fulfillment to their life if they see it as something that fulfills them. But if they are only driven by being the best, then that's all they've got to go for and it's going to be hollow if they don't make it. Yeah, that's the thing. Quote, unquote, make it, you know, Mm because everyone has a different definition of make it. Yeah. I think there's the mainstream making it like, you're famous and everyone knows your work, everyone respects your work, you're admired everywhere. That's that's the most common, make it. And then there's the more personal one that a more balanced person might say, well, you know, if I get to do what I love and I get paid for it, then that's I'm happy. That's the best yeah. thing that could ever happen. So in a way, this this screenplay is almost a little bit of a jab at... Hollywood, in a way, it's a little bit of a jab at the people who see fame and fortune and at admiration from other people as more important than actually doing something great because you love it. Which also plays into La La Land, so we'll explore that on the definitely. Next so we can podcast. see where Chazelle's mm-hmm. uh, thinking is coming from, and also how he's going to approach it in different ways. Mm-hmm. There's a great scene that comes up after where we were. We're, we're quite early in the story, and we'll, we'll work through it quite quickly, I think, from this point forward, because uh, we've talked about a lot of the themes now. But there is the famous scene where Fletcher throws a chair at Andrew's head. Yeah. And this is the best abusive line ever, really. Why do you suppose I just held a chair at your head, Neiman? <laughs> He's even asking him to figure out why it happened straight yeah, away. Yeah. Andrew doesn't even respond by saying, You could have hurt me. Like I'm I'm getting out of here. He's, this isn't he's literally wondering he's what thinking, did I do? What did I do? I don't know, he says. Sure you yeah. do. He's he's forcing him into thinking this yeah. way. And that's when he has his his first real breakdown. And Fletcher really pokes him. He says, Oh, you're one of those single tier people. Yeah, that's a great, what does that even mean? Some of the dialogue is just fantastic. <laughs> no, I mean that's there, great, but I mean like you get a sense so of what that, that is means, a very like, creative put down to have been thought of in a sec- split second like that. Yeah, wow. that's funny. But and and it doesn't the abuse doesn't end with the throwing of the chair. He's literally slapping at him. I mean, he mm-hmm. literally slaps him by the end mm-hmm. a couple times, and it's, he really uh, he really manipulates him. There's so yeah. there's so much dialogue we could basically read the whole scene out but one of the other great ones is Fletcher says to him are you upset Andrew replies no so so Fletcher says oh so you don't give a shit about any of this mm. like straight away whatever answer he has is wrong. Fletcher has yeah. yeah a way of telling him he's wrong instantly yeah so he's always doubting himself and yeah. ultimately if he if he's always doubting himself He's going to have to hand his power over to Fletcher, who seems to know what is right all of the time for him. After this point, there was lots of exposition that's removed from the script version. Everything becomes very stre- streamlined. There was there was a scene where he answered a call from his dad, and in the film, the phone just rings and he won't answer it. 
Yes. Um, so actually, Damien Chazelle talked about that scene in that interview that I that I watched, and basically what he said was that it was in the edit for the longest time, and it was at a point in the film they realized where the pace needed to get a little bit quicker, mm-hmm. and that they did different variations of that scene. They made it a little bit shorter. They cut out a couple things, but Nonetheless, it just wasn't working. So they experimented with just taking everything out and just having him, you know, just, I think, not answer the phone. And then it worked. And then that's, and that's very all that, watch, yeah. that's all, all the dialogue that was in that scene was just, it was basically the same point. Yeah. So I think it's, again, one of those examples where with a look, with an action, can speak volumes. Yeah. Ultimately, the point is he doesn't want his dad's advice. He's going to do what he wants to do. So that's pretty clear by the fact he's not answering the phone. Yes. He does have his one date, I suppose, where he goes for pizza with Nicole straight Mm -hmm. after that. This is an interesting scene because he's connecting with her only out of loneliness. They're both lonely. Mm -hmm. So that is where their connection is being formed. Mm -hmm. But he also starts to have his doubts because she's not able to say what she wants in life. She hasn't picked a major yet. She doesn't know why she went to the, the the university she's picked. And that's basically, to him, a red flag of sorts that mm-hmm. she might not be the right one for him. Yep. But he's also very insecure. So he does want to... He would rather have companionship that doesn't work at this stage than make a decision for himself and when he does make the decision it's for the wrong reasons it's it's just out of ambition so yeah yeah and that was so subtle we'll get to that part at the end but i really like how you phrase that the next big part of the film is just their first competition which is notable because andrew loses the folder i was thinking about that when i was re-watching it and i'm starting to suspect that fletcher stole the folder yeah I think that was kind of my impression too. It's definitely not written anywhere. The folder in every version of the script just goes missing. But I, I doubt get it the, was the janitor. There's no the way know. that it's portrayed on screen. There's no way that someone would have to be sneaking around him to take it. Mm-hmm. And who else in that entire place had any interest in? And taking away that folder, except for Fletcher. He must have been watching like a hawk, because that yeah. was like literally... A split second. Ten yeah. seconds, at the he's most. Just, he's just distracted, trying to overhear a conversation for a, yeah, a few seconds, yeah. and that's it. Which makes him a great actor. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the character, you know, because you really buy him when he's... What do you mean you don't have the folder? You mm-hmm. know, he's, yeah. he's a good actor. <laughs> and he knows everyone's weaknesses. Yeah. He knows all of Andrew's weaknesses, so we can assume that he also knows... Uh, Tanner, the other drummer's mm-hmm. weaknesses as well. Because he knows he can't play without the folder. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, this guy's pretty much God in this world. And, yeah, so this is kind of his uh, opportunity to show Fletcher where he's where he's at, Yeah, you know, in his talent. And that's a really, if if you were testing your students in that way, what better way to do it than to say, who knows the songs well enough to play without the sheet music? Mm. Of all of Fletcher's teaching tricks, mm-hmm. that's one of the most interesting, I think, is just figuring out who in his... He might be doing this with other people as well, we don't know, mm. in, in across the course of a year or something, 
trying to figure out who who's been practicing enough that they know the songs off by heart already. And you know that's interesting too. You just brought up a good point: is who else is he abusing to this extent? Mm-hmm. We don't get to see him being this abusive towards anyone else, except when he it's kicks a, out that guy. But it's at least one student a year. It must be. He must be picking. Or we just don't one see prodigy. it. Yeah. You know, we're just seeing Andrew's perspective, mm-hmm. but he might be having the same sort of relationship with a handful of students that because he wants the best out of everybody i doubt he just wants the best out of the drummer yeah it's like he wants to test everyone but it's only the ones that start to keep coming back to the abuse that are the ones he he thinks oh maybe they've got what it takes yeah another thing i want to talk about is about the laszlo polgar story which got taken out of the film I think that's a really interesting side note for people to hear about that originally Andrew is going to leave Schaefer. He wants to get transferred and Fletcher has this conversation with him in which he tells him about Laszlo Polgar, who was this psychologist who raised his three daughters to become chess prodigies. It is in the script. It's not in the film. Yeah. And I don't know if it got taken out. Maybe they learned something about Polgar following writing this and they thought maybe it didn't fit it didn't work mm. but Polgar's a really interesting guy because he so he lived in the ussr he was hungarian when he had kids he moved back to hungary and he decided to do he was a psychologist of the behavioralist sort and he wanted to figure out what what made greatness could you could you instill greatness in a person just by raising them the right way? Mm. So he raised his three daughters. He homeschooled them, which was considered completely crazy in the Soviet Union. Well, in in the communist uh, regimes, because obviously everyone was meant to go to the school. Right. You didn't have as much independent uh, freedom, but he he kind of somehow got it organized that he could raise his his daughters by himself. And they all went on to be essentially the best female players of chess of all time. And he raised them with something like five or six hours a day. He was teaching, and it wasn't just chess. He, he tried to teach them advanced mathematics when they were kids. He taught them various languages, including Esperanto, which is a made-up language. So he want, he was obsessed with trying to turn them into greats. And uh, one of the girls played a match against Kasparov, which was quite a big thing because Kasparov was basically saying that women weren't smart enough to play chess. And it really challenged a lot of the uh, the assumptions because the girls were saying that none of the opponents that they could get were good enough because they thought women weren't being taught to play chess very well. And they were very good example of being taught practicing so much and being taught from birth to do something that they could become the best in the world so i'm really surprised that they took this out because i think it really yeah it really supports fletcher's way of thinking Mm. and andrew ends up repeating this at the at the dinner table when his family's Mm. um when when he has this (laughs) kind of outburst at his family right and you see how competitive he is and how yeah. single-minded he is. He And he can't feel good about anyone else's successes, which is 
the worst thing you can do mm. if you want to be successful. The worst thing you can do is belittle everyone else's successes. Mm -hmm. like we we can only rise in life if we collaborate a lot and, mm -hmm. and work with each other. But if you go around putting other people down, they're not going to want to spend time with you. Mm -hmm. So, I and agree. he says he doesn't have any friends, and they're then not he doesn't care. To him. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. yeah, as you they're say, not important. But that's a very interesting thing about the about the story with the psychologist and yeah. Yeah, I don't know why he would take that out. Maybe it's a it was a pacing issue or Yeah, I I get the feeling maybe know. he learned something about Polgar that didn't add up. Right. Or something. You know, it just didn't fit in with the story. Maybe maybe it wasn't all about conditioning or his intentions were different. I see what you mean. There's other maybe details he was that, misrepresenting that people the might have called them out. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that's true. He has tried so hard to make this film uh, as authentic as yes as possible. So it, maybe he took it out for for that reason. Uh, so that whole sequence where Andrew becomes really nasty towards his family is a scene where you almost lose Andrew as a as a someone to care for because you see how far he's gone into his own arrogance his own tunnel vision that he doesn't have any even his dad kind of joins you would expect his dad to kind of jump in and defend him yeah, but his dad stops supporting him but his dad that, kind of sides with the happens. with the rest of the family so it's kind of interesting we only get this one glimpse into how all of this is affecting andrew's relationship with his family it pushes the audience to see just how far this could go if he's un unchecked and you see almost Fletcher's influence in his behavior here, too. Mm. It's got Fletcher written all over it. And also, uh, Damon Chisel had said that this was the one scene that a lot of his family didn't want to be put in the film. Because even though, obviously, Damien never acted in this sort of way with his family, the family didn't want that in there for, for that reason that they would think that he had similar similar experience but he kept it because he felt that this was true to what was happening to andrew it gives us this sort of red flag with the road that he's taken mm -hmm. and this is about the time that he's going to descend and it's all going to be over for him soon mm -hmm. at least at schaefer so fletcher introduces Connolly, his his old drumming partner from the original first year group that he was in. Connolly joins Fletcher's studio band. So now you suddenly have three drummers mm -hmm. and only one of them gets to play. Mm -hmm. So they have this, this huge competition, which is basically Fletcher allowing them to play for two seconds at a time and then shouts at them that it's not his tempo. And he sends everyone else out just so he can carry out this this insane <laughs> that's the only way to describe it right this completely insane he's a drill sergeant at yeah. this point he's just yelling at them and even though he doesn't even give them a second to show any tempo he's obviously not paying attention to what they're playing he's literally abusing them emotionally that's exactly mm -hmm. what he's doing and he's taking his time with it and at the end uh i believe he chooses andrew yeah so andrew end. Andrew feels like this is his triumph over mm -hmm. the other two drummers. But really, that's not entirely what happens. And 
in the earlier versions of this this script, there are some other students that live near him who are dealing drugs, and it just kind of remains in in the shooting script that he's bought some pills off them. And it's mentioned that when he's on the Greyhound bus to the next competition that he's got some pills with him. Yeah. But I think that pretty much gets removed from the film. And, I mean, that's not and the his film. crazy behavior is not down to the fact that he's, I'm not sure which drug he's taking. It's but probably it's, Adderall or something. Yeah, it's, a very it's something that college would, it would be something that hypes him up. and, and keep, Well, Adderall gets you super focused and stuff. So it would make sense that he would be after something like that. Mm. Yeah. That was implied. So actually the scene that's going to follow when he's on a Greyhound bus. He's been told to leave at least two hours earlier to make sure he's there on time, but there's a flat tire. So mm -hmm. by the time a replacement bus has arrived, he can't get to where he needs to go in time. Mm -hmm. He ends up renting a car, drives there, leaves his sticks at the car rental place, and he's acting completely out of character. He thinks he's the most important guy in the band at this point. He believes he's been chosen. He believes he's gone through this mm. trial and that Fletcher chose him above the other two. And in reality, Fletcher's perfectly willing to switch him out there and then. Yeah. Which is very telling. I mean, it's a, it's a dangerous game for Fletcher to play if he really doesn't want the other two drummers. But I think we have a sense here that the fact that they weren't chosen either actually might be what Fletcher's doing to make them even better. He's going to pick one, and then the two that aren't picked are going to want to impress him even more the next time they get to play. So that is true. He's doing all of this just to manipulate everybody. Plus, he isn't always picking Andrew. Right. And plus, I think, you know, they're all about the same level, even though obviously Andrew is really good. It seems very clear to me that they're all in the same level based on that scene where he's trying them all three at the same time. And they all kind of have the same level. And so I don't think, like you said, I think it is easy for him to be like, yeah, if he doesn't make it, then I'll take this guy. If, maybe he favors Andrew a little bit, but it's not like the next two guys are terrible. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, he's, so, he's willing to take the risk because he knows there's no real risk in allowing yeah. these two to drama the, the exactly. competition either. But also, I feel like he just enjoys it at this. He enjoys it. Who he enjoys the power. He enjoys how he manipulates these guys. I think it, it, he gets off on it. Yeah, and Andrew returns back to the car rental place to get his sticks. Mm -hmm. His bandmate is shocked that he is driving and he's meant to be on stage in ten minutes. There's the car crash and. I don't even know if it's worth me saying it. The fact that the title is a pun, Whiplash, famous, <laughs> right. famous jazz song, and he's in a car crash, Whiplash. Right. I mean, this, this scene just builds up and up and up. He's playing with a, what looks like a broken wrist, or, or he's, he's damaged his arm severely mm -hmm. when he gets back. There's blood dripping on the drums. Fletcher is utterly appalled that he's even attempting. Some of the things that they did reduce in the written version is um, there was a bit more competition between the drummers when he drops his stick. There was like a sense that the yeah. others should have picked it up for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do remember that from the script. But in the film, the other two drummers don't really have much of a screen time. They're just 
background. Mm. Yeah. Then that's it. He's going to attack Fletcher. He's lost his mind. I think it's one of the most um, painful scenes to watch, you know, because you can imagine the type of pain that he's in, but he's, you know, running on adrenaline at this point. He's playing, but he literally goes until his body literally won't let him anymore. Reiterating what I said earlier was he's so good at writing descriptions and action that reading it, I was just in pain. I mean, and it's just very... It's the extreme version of the extent that, that he's willing to go. Unfortunately, it, it, this is exactly what I had to take for him to stop. Because mm. this is the end of his career at Schaefer. Yeah, we cut straight to the lawyers after this point. Yeah. And the most interesting thing about that scene is that it's revealed that Fletcher's prodigy, Sean Casey, had hanged himself. Mm-hmm. And there was no car crash. So Fletcher had deliberately misled everyone at the school into thinking that this person had died by accident, whereas the lawyers are saying that he had developed anxiety and depression as a result of being taught by Fletcher, which is a very big difference. It's a huge difference. And I I, kind of want to go back to that scene and ask you what you think about this, which is, you know, the scene where Fletcher just receives the news that he died and he, he goes out to talk to the students and it's the only time we see him be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. He tells them to put down their instruments, which I'm sure they've never heard before and they're shocked by it. And he begins to tell the story about, you know, the student that he had and how he died. And he even cries in front of them, which a part of me wonders how much of that is for show and how much of it is genuine from his character perspective. It's the biggest question of the screenplay is, is Fletcher ultimately the person who you think he is? That is ultimately a good guy who has these, these very intense teaching methods. And -hmm. then there's the other idea that he is a real abuser, which Mm -hmm. is the view I think I favor slightly more. And it's open to interpretation, I think, because uh, yeah. the that was that uh, scene you just mentioned is good evidence that it does affect him. I think so. I think I don't think I don't think every person is one hundred percent one thing or another. I think I agree with you. I think he gets off on the abuse. I think that's just his character. I think he's driven by that. But nonetheless, I think a part of him does feel a sort of remorse. Well, the only thing, yeah, the only thing I want to question is, does he also cry because he feels he might have been responsible? Right. So if that's that is the case, <laughs> yeah, what right does he have to try and do this again to someone like Andrew? Mm. If he knows that this is what is possible. So again, it's all to be interpreted. Yeah, yeah. And I really love that a mm-hmm. film, a screenplay that is only 90 pages long can ask so many questions with only two main characters. And it's all because it is centered entirely on conflict and moral questions and not telling us things that, that would explain all the answers. And that, that's a very difficult balance to do, I think. It is, yeah, definitely. 
so yeah, we, after this point, we are looking at what happens to Andrew's life outside of Schaefer and even the street scenes of New York, and they are described in the screenplay this way as well. It's like he's in another place entirely. He's in a different neighborhood of New York. And visually, we see that as well, just in the architecture, just in, and the fact it's summer now and there's, the sun is out and et cetera, et cetera. In the Blacklist version, just if you're interested, he, he was working in a law office. His father had some connections to get him into one, and that's all been toned down. He's a much more realistic character in, in the final version. And he's working at the, a deli, I think, and he's, mm -hmm. he's not doing much with his, his life. His dad's looking out for him, though. Potentially he got some money from the settlement from, <laughs> from Schaefer as well because he's got his own apartment at mm -hmm. age 19, 20 in New York City. So That's true. Even you though know. it looks like a very shitty apartment, but knowing the rent there, I'm sure it was a lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but then there, there are little signs in the streets around him that it's still New York City, and it's the city of jazz, and there's, mm -hmm. there's a festival that's going to be going on. Mm -hmm. And then one day he's walking down the street and he sees the name Terrence Fletcher on, mm -hmm. the, on the sign outside of a club. So he goes in to listen, and he's tempted and he's definitely tormented about everything because he had to give up. He didn't just have to give up going to Fletcher's class. He had to give up jazz. He had to give up music. And it's what he dedicated his whole life to. And right. there's a sense that it's, it's like an addiction, as you said. But he's gone from this addiction to going cold turkey. Mm. And really there was probably a place of balance there mm. because music isn't inherently harmful at all. Mm -hmm. It was Fletcher's class that was harmful to him. Mm. So the fact that he just removed music from his life entirely, this has made him more vulnerable to Fletcher again when he goes to see him. And I really love that scene. It's it's really beautifully shot and yeah. really makes me want to go to New York to a jazz I know. club. And I know. Yeah. Definitely, just uh, the whole ambiance of it. And I went to a couple in New York, and like that was my first, uh, like, I got like flashbacks and wish I could go back. And I love how it's described in the script too, the way he describes Andrew listening to Fletcher and just sort of being in awe of how great he is. You know, I mean, this is, despite everything that happened. It's the first time we get to hear him play. Yeah. And play from his heart especially. Yeah. Play his own music. Playing piano, you know, we haven't seen, well, we haven't seen Fletcher on any instrument, but we wouldn't expect piano. Well, at least I didn't expect piano for some reason. And we see him just play this beautiful piece and Andrew just being sort of, and, and that comes across in the film too, when we see Miles, uh, his performance of how he's just in admiration of, of his talent. Uh, despite everything that came before, he still respects the man. Yeah. You know. Actually, as you say that, maybe the piano is the perfect instrument because it's the most delicate one in that sense. Maybe only a harp could be more delicate. Mm. The fact that the piano... <laughs> I can't imagine him on a harp, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, but it's the fact that the piano does... Right. You can play it gently and, mm -hmm. and with so much emotion. Right, right, right. He's not a... Yeah, he's, he's not an electric guitarist. Then, and I think that's telling. It's mm -hmm. telling us there's much more to this character than we actually have perceived up until this point. 
you just get that he really cares. You know, he cares about the music. He cares about the art. And he could be like Andrew's dad. He could be a musician who never quite made it. I think he is. You know, and he admits to a and little bit of that himself. Because yeah. he said he never wanted it. He never wanted to be Buddy Rich, first of all. Mm-hmm. That was never his intention. He wanted to be the guy who found Buddy Rich. Yeah. So in a way, he already knew his strengths. He knew his place. He knew what he wanted. And I believe it's in this scene where he kind of explains a little yeah. bit of that. Everything is revealed. Although yeah. we're not... At this point, he's also still... He's definitely playing nice Fletcher. Mm-hmm. There's a there's some very good quotes. And again, we this is another of those. We could read the entire section out because it's just brilliant, the dialogue. But the key part of it is when he says, there are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. Mm-hmm. I love that. So yeah. this is precisely Fletcher's plan for creating his prodigy. It's all revealed here. He believes that the reason there's n- the people become great is if they're tested to the absolute extremes that they can withhold and that you should never say good job to anyone. It's it's not an easy answer, this, this whole thing. It's raising a question because we definitely do need positive reinforcement. In, mm-hmm. If everything you do is considered not good enough, that will destroy you internally. Like in your mind, that's not going to work well. And this is something that uh, this is something that Andrew also brings up when he says, you know, if he pushes and pushes, isn't he going to be afraid of discouraging the next Charlie Parker? To which you know Fletcher responds to the next Charlie Parker wouldn't be discouraged, and 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 the, the, that's kind of. Like you're saying, it's kind of a hard thing to argue against. It's it's very there's no answer really mm-hmm. to this. It's just theories, and it kind of I keep thinking a lot about Steve Jobs when discussing this because it, it Steve Jobs is a similar character to Fletcher in in which he was wanting the best from his team, and he pushed and he pushed and he pushed and he pushed and. He pushed and he didn't really care about people's emotions and feelings. He just wanted the best, just like Fletcher wants the best. And it's this sort of trait in them that makes him just seek that perfection, you know. And they, and they keep thinking about what Seth Rogen's character uh, was in Steve Jobs says to him at the end of that film where he says, it's not binary. You can be gifted and be a decent person. You can be both. You don't have to choose one or the other. And I keep thinking about that whenever Fletcher says something like that. It's like, well, like you say, I think we do need positive reinforcement. I don't think you can just live off of someone just pushing you and pushing you. I mean, I think you can get to the same results. Sure, you can be pushed to the the point of perfection. I think we've seen that. I think that method has worked. But that doesn't mean it has to be the only method or even the most effective method. It's, I suppose part of it is just being good at something isn't everything. And it's also the fact that... So the idea that what Fletcher is trying to do, and this is 
part of the problem of this script being about musicians because this is art as opposed to other things that you could be the best at. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this actually comes up in the conversation around the the family dinner table. Andrew's cousin, who plays American football, mm-hmm. asks him, well, how do you know who wins in these competitions? Isn't it subjective anyway? Mm. And Andrew replies, no, it's not. So he believes there's like this objective way that you can prove you're the best musician. But in reality, what you're, what Fletcher is trying to do, I'm not saying he does it, but what he's trying to do is to create a player who is so well versed in music that when they do put their mind to making their own music, they're going to create something great because they've already done all of the practice to get to a level where they're, when they do start expressing themselves, they'll be able to do something incredible because they're way further ahead. Like you can have great big ambitions and it's the same for any kind of art form in that sense. Mm-hmm. You can have a great idea for a poem, but if you haven't practiced writing poetry yeah. over and over and over again and figuring out what works and what doesn't work mm-hmm. and actually learning how sentences are constructed and deconstructed and how to use rhythm and tone and etc etc you're not going to get anywhere it's never going to be quite what you had up in your head when it was just this cloudy vision of what will sound so great Mm -hmm. because you don't have the talent behind it you haven't done the hard work so that's kind of where this this idea of what fletch is trying to do almost falls apart because it's missing the spark of creativity He's going to get Andrew up to the level where he's an amazing drummer, but he's just a machine. Mm. He's just practiced so much. But then that last scene, he's going to reduce Andrew, humiliate him in front of the entire crowd, and Andrew responds creatively to it by going back out. Right. So it, it, it ties in with what Fletcher said, what the, the quote you just had about how the next Charlie Parker would never be discouraged. Andrew's not discouraged, but he also does something creative. He starts to lead the band himself. Mm -hmm. And that's not something he could have practiced for. It It, comes from his inner creativity. Right. And that's something that I think Fletcher didn't expect and was visibly pissed off that he was doing that. At first. At first. And then once he really started listening and it became very clear to him that this is his Charlie Parker and then you can just see it. I love that moment in the in the film where you can just see it in his eyes, that realization, and then that, that excitement. All of a sudden, he's on this other level. And, and then you see the whole culmination. Then it becomes a, a collaboration at this point. You don't really see a uh, teacher and student. You see an, a collaboration of Fletcher and Andrew and creating this music and it's the first time we see actually Fletcher encourage him in a non abusive way you know he's really pushing him but not in a in the way he was before he's finally able to step back yeah and yes there's a level of trust now there's like he I know you're doing it and he's it, it's it's great like it's pretty much what what I feel like as an audience we wanted to see but at this point in a way Fletcher got what he wanted but then you're like well it, that feels wrong 
You know what I mean? Like it kind of proved his point right. He probably mm -hmm. thinks like I did this because of what so I the, did. That is the central problem with the film is some people believe that the film sends out the wrong message. Hmm. But at the same time, it neatly ties up all of the questions that the film has raised up until this point. Hmm. Ultimately, it's still a subjective ending. There is no proof that anything changed in Andrew or or anything. He just no. he does what he wants. He takes the energy that he previously had used to tackle Fletcher to the ground and start trying to hit him. Mm -hmm. He takes that energy and uses it creatively in his music. Mm -hmm. So it's not all just about Fletcher pushing him and him becoming better and better at playing Whiplash or Caravan anymore. It was just it's in about, that moment. Yeah. It was just in that moment. And I don't think the film pretends to have any answers either. I don't mm -hmm. think it says like, yeah. Well, that's why is. it ends right there, yeah. Yeah, and then I think yeah. Damien Chazelle would tell you himself that he, he it's all questions, you know, it's it's not like he's trying to preach one way or another. Mm. It's all just a, an exploration of what is this type of behavior? How does this, how is this justified? Is it justifiable? Does it work? Is mm -hmm. it worth putting up with this? You have to decide for yourself. And this could be the way the film is most misinterpreted, I think. It, if you take this at face value instead of a writer ending with a question mark, I think, I think mm. that's the key to this, mm. this story. And, but what a brilliant ending. I mean, it's just phenomenal. In reading it, like I remember watching the film and just thinking those last 10 minutes were just great. Because if you were to take those last 10 minutes and just have it be on its own... That has a story. Man tries to trick this young man. Young man's almost discouraged, comes back, retaliates. The teacher now sees his true talent. They work together. I mean, that's in like its own little entity right there. Like there's just so much going on in the last 10 minutes. And you see that in the script. When I was reading it, I, I was just like, I've seen the film, yet I'm completely invested in everything because the way he's writing it, has a certain pace as well. And the way he's describing the drumsticks hitting the skin, the way he's describing the blood, the everything, the emotion, the look, the beat, everything's so clear to me reading this script, reading those last 10 pages. I was like, this is a master writer at work who's obviously gone through many, many drafts to get to this point where he knows exactly what the beats need to be done and where. And it's like music itself. Reading it, I felt like I was reading music, like beat tone everything and that's the whole point and then until it reaches its climax and i was just so that's what i was so inspired reading the script those last 10 pages i was like i want to write so badly right now i just want to like put ink to paper and write something really great and so yeah i was floored by the ending of the by the ending of the script yeah that's wonderful yeah i yeah. i completely agree so yeah, I'm very excited because this is just part one of a three-parter. And next time we're going to get to look at La La Land. Yes. Which is one of my favorite films. So very excited to look at the script for that and mm -hmm. also see how Chazelle matures, how he wants to approach 
the same kind of themes with a completely mm -hmm. different perspective and exploring different ways of being. And uh, yeah, I think it's going to be really good. So yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah. Awesome. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. In two weeks' time from now, we will be posting the episode to La La Land, so look out for that one. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can do so at our official website, which is the21strewrite.com. That's spelled with a two and a one. The21st21strewrite.com. Thanks again. <laughs>